We have a lot of ground to cover this morning in James chapter 1. We're going to spend most of our time there, so if you want to open your Bibles to that chapter, I'm going to ask Deanie to come up and pray that God will give us great clarity as we get into this. Pray with me. Father, um, as we come this morning, God, what we are asking you to do is open up each one of our hearts and our minds to your word, uh, the things that we're going to hear. Uh, there's things that we need to learn, Lord, to do and not do. And we know when you ask us to reveal your word to us and, and through your spirit, God, that you'll do that. So we are asking that this morning and that the message that Phil has prepared will um, sink into our hearts and minds because it's a verification from your word and verified in your word, Lord. So uh, thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Deanie. This past Wednesday in our SALT group, we were diving into some difficult things to understand in the Bible. And so I had asked people to jump around among different translations to help us gain some understanding. That's a practice that has existed in our SALT group for a while. John England started that by carrying his iPad with him so he would easily be able to go in and out of different translations. And now a number of different folks in our group will either have an iPad with them or they bring their phones and everybody's able to do that same thing. And there's wonderful resources on the internet that make that possible. So you don't have to carry nine different Bibles with you, but you can jump into nine different translations. As we were going through this particular subject, I had asked somebody to read from the English Standard Version, which is the one we teach from most of the time. And then I'd ask somebody to read from the New International Version, another one from the New American Standard, and then one other person from the King James Version of the Bible. And then my friend Jay Denning actually brought up a translation I had never heard of. And he said, let me read this for you from the easy-to-read version. Now, he found that on Bible Gateway. The fact that I have never seen that translation is amazing to me because the link for it sits right above English Standard Version of the Bible, the one that I go to most often. But I had never seen easy-to-read version. And I said, well, please do that. Of course, that came after a little bit of mocking. I'm like, easy-to-read version? What is that? The Bible for dummies? What, what are we talking about? You know, like windows for dummies? And, and so we did a little bit of mocking, and then he read, and I, I found myself somewhat inspired by the whole idea of the easy-to-read version. Not necessarily what he read, though there was great teaching in that too, just the idea of the easy-to-read version of the Bible. And so I, I brought that back with me and, and kind of shifted up where I was going with the sermon, holding on to that same idea, the easy-to-read version. And that's how I wanted to present this, recognizing that most people try to make James chapter 1 exactly that, easy-to-read. And they do it by distorting the context of it. So follow me through this. If we were to look at James chapter 1 through the lens of the easy-to-read version, one of the ways that we might illustrate that is we address it the same way we would the eating of an Oreo cookie. Easy-to-read version. So I'll illustrate that for you. I have up here two packs of the most stuff Oreo cookie, which by the way is God's gift to humanity. So we're talking about four different, whatever, stacks of cream filling in there. This is the double stuff Oreo 
on steroids. If you have not tried the most stuff, head to Rose Hours as soon as we're done here, pick up a pack, and just without any guilt, enjoy the whole thing this afternoon. Preacher said to do it. Well, here's the way most people eat an Oreo cookie, or at least those that love God. You will, you will tear the thing apart. So you take the cookie off, the top cookie, you eat that cookie, leaving you with the cream filling on the other cookie, at which time you put the cookie in your mouth and using your teeth, you scrape the cream filling off of the, the second cookie and then follow it up by eating the last cookie. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Oh, there's good people, good people. Now, a few people really heretics, if you will, choose to eat the Oreo cookie a different way by putting the entire cookie in your mouth at one time. That's Ray Rossman is confessing right there. Anybody else? <laughs> Dale Jantz is one of the lost folks as well. And then there's a, a few people that do this, and I do not understand why they would. It is beyond me. They will dip their Oreo cookie in milk, take a bite, and then dip the other. How many of you... thus destroying the joy that is the Oreo cookie. <laughs> well, people will approach the book of James, particularly the first chapter, just like the first illustration that I gave you on how to eat an Oreo cookie. You tear it apart, expecting that each part stands on its own. The cookie, the cream filling, the cookie. I'll show you what I mean. If you have your Bibles open to James chapter 1, let's just go together to verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There's the cookie. And then we go into the cream filling on, if you need wisdom, you should ask God, and God will give it to you, because he never withholds that. When you ask, you must believe and not doubt, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded and unstable in all his ways, cream filling. So you scrape that off, and you expect that it stands on its own. And then you get into the blessings that are reserved for those who remain steadfast. We talked about those blessings last Sunday. Just briefly, we talked about those, but that's like eating the last cookie, expecting that each one will stand on its own, and you can understand the full significance of the entire chapter by eating just one portion of the cookie at a time. But James chapter 1 is not designed that way, not at all. James chapter 1 was designed to be explored or eaten, if you will, the way we would approach an oatmeal cream pie. The, remember, all of this is inspired by the easy-to-read version. How we would eat the double oatmeal cream pie. Now, if you have not experienced the joy of the double oatmeal cream pie, forget about the most stuff Oreo cookies. Go buy you a case and just turn on the TV, probably to the Super Bowl this afternoon, and go to work on the case of oatmeal cream pies. You will not be sorry you did. <laughs> it smells so good. You have no idea how badly I want to take a bite. We cannot approach the oatmeal cream pie the way we approach the Oreo cookie. Here's what I mean by that. If you have enjoyed one of these, you know that you cannot pull off the top layer, which is the cake. You can't do it. Even though there is a layer of cream filling underneath that, if you try to pull off the top layer, you're going to pull off part of the cream filling. You can't separate one for the, from the other. So you've got cake, cream filling, cake, cream filling, cake. <laughs> it's manna from heaven. <clears throat> so wonderful. But you have to eat it all at one time. 
taking you the first bite, then the second bite, the third bite, all the way through it. You cannot separate the layers. And when it comes to James chapter 1, if you want to understand the whole of that chapter, you have to approach it like you would the double oatmeal cream pie. You have to enjoy it all at once. You have to dive into it together. You cannot separate it out. And let me show you why. Let's go to James 1 again. This time we'll start in verse 1. We looked at this last week. I told you that I had reserved this one verse for just what we were talking about then. Listen to this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. That's the top layer of cake. So much in it. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing cream filling. And then here's this second cake. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Second cake. Now here's that second dose of cream filling. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass... He will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits, cream filling. And now here's the last cake. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change." Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And then there's a break in the chapter. That is one double stack oatmeal cream pie intended to be digested that way, enjoyed that way, explored that way. If you try to separate out sound bites, you are going to lose the significance of this teaching. If you try to proof text this thing by doing things like saying, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, you're going to dilute it. You're going to miss it. But when you put it all together, you become easy to read, easier to understand, and even easier to live. That's how God designed this. So Wednesday night, I thought, I want to go with the easy-to-read version idea for Sunday morning, throwing out some of the things that I'd been studying. And as I was studying early on in the week, I discovered all kinds of wonderful things in the passage that had my mind going here and going there. And I realized that some questions very quickly arise in some of these passages, particularly the one I want us to look at today, starting in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The first place that I went early in the week was exploring the natural question that I hope popped up in your mind as well. What in the world does James mean by saying that God cannot be tempted? That doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem consistent with other things that I know from the New Testament. There's a huge, massive question that pops up when we read that verse. Because we know, we know that God has been tempted. We know that God has been tempted. Listen to this from Mark chapter 1. Laid my Bible down too early. Verse 12, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, that's speaking of Jesus. Right after his baptism, he was driven out into the wilderness where he was, say it with me, tempted. And we understand that Jesus is both God and man. As you explore that whole idea out theologically, you will stumble across an interesting term called the hypostatic union. Here's what it looks like. The hypostatic union, defined this way. The combination of the divine and the human natures in the single person of Jesus Christ. That is the theological term, hypostatic union, that causes us to stumble as we get into James chapter 1, because if I truly believe that this has happened, that there is a combination of the divine and the human natures, both in the person of Jesus Christ, the single person of Jesus Christ, then I have a problem, because James says God cannot be tempted. God cannot be tempted. There's a number of people that have taken that verse and tried to throw out the entire book of James based on it. Understanding that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, understanding that that passage exists in the Bible, and then James says that God can't be tempted, therefore James is not a valid book of the Bible. And that is not true. That is not true at all. And I'll show you why. But first, let's make sure that we take a close look at the temptation of Jesus so that we can understand the whole of this. This is found in Matthew chapter 4. Go with me to Matthew chapter 4. Keep your finger there in James 1. We're coming right back. Go to Matthew 4. Verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now that's the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness Yet James in James chapter 1 says, God cannot be tempted. Somehow we have to reconcile these two things 
or we may fall into the same camp as these other teachers that say we don't need to listen to anything James has to say because it isn't valid. Well, there are simple ways, well, not necessarily simple, there are good ways for us to reconcile these two things. And interestingly enough, James is the one that gives them to us. So let's go back to James chapter 1. In my early study of this, as I was wrestling with this question about the hypostatic union that is Jesus, the coming together of the divine and the human and the single person of him, I was studying a lot of different people, and I I came across some things from John Piper that I am very appreciative of, and I'm going to show those to you in just a minute. I can tell you with all honesty that I wish this came directly from me. It doesn't. This is John Piper's stuff, but it is really good. Listen to verse 14. Piper says that there is an answer for how we approach this. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Piper's teaching says that the difference that makes James's teaching in chapter 1 match up against what we read in Mark chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 4 about Jesus being tempted is discovered when we understand how sin happens. And he graphs out the verse that we just read. It helped me a lot. It became very visual for me. I hope it does the same for you. Take a look at this. This graph is really good. This is a path unto sin. Here it is. Sin begins in desire. And the same was true for Jesus. Think about this. When he was lured out into the wilderness, the Bible says he was already hungry. He was already hungry. There was a desire that was already there for food. And then the enemy lured him up to the edge of sin by showing him the rock and saying, you could speak to this rock and turn it into an oatmeal cream pie right now if you bread. You could turn it into bread if you want to. So he was speaking to the desire as he was luring him towards sin. But James goes on to teach us that if we continue on this path, we will come to a place that he refers to as conception. Conception is where desire comes together with action, and that brings acts of sin. It's interesting that James would use this term conception. It's as if he's talking about how a baby is conceived, and it's the exact same idea. Desire and action come together at the point of conception, and they become acts of sin, producing this. This is the byproduct that is a result of that very thing happening at conception. And James goes on to say that if this grows If it goes through this period and is left untended, it will lead to death. Acts of sin lead to death. When they are left unrestrained and unbridled, this is the end result. It is death. Wonderful picture of how that works. And now, part of Piper's teaching is Jesus is different than us And yet at the same time, the same as us, because he found himself in the wilderness going through this process, except he only made it this far. The enemy only got him this far. 
He spoke to the desire. He tried to lure him to the point of conception to bring forth acts of sin that would grow and magnify unto death. But Jesus stopped right here. Conception never happened. Desire and action never came together. Therefore, Jesus is at the same time like us, but different. He found a way out. He knew a way out. Three different times over the course of 40 days, he found ways out. Now, that's just three times that are recorded for us. Personally, I believe there were other temptations that might have been thrown in there, just Phil's personal opinion, because this was 40 days. And we know that after the end of those 40 days, Jesus, in his divinity and humanity, had so worn out the enemy that Satan disappeared. (laughs) It's like, oh, I surrender. End of story. He wore him out. Because each time Satan tried to get him to this point, Jesus stopped it right here. Now, here's the good news. This is really cool. God gave us the exact same ability. Go with me to the book of 1 Corinthians, would you? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So here's what the Bible's teaching. We all have the ability to stop the path and the process of sin at the same place Jesus did because if you are his child, if you are his child, listen, if you are his child, you have the Holy Spirit living within you. You have Jesus living within you. And that means you have the same power, the same ability to stop it right there before this ever happens and certainly brings forth this so that it can grow within us and lead to death. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? Now, you might ask yourself, why is it that Jesus had to go through that? Well, I'm glad you asked because the book of Hebrews answers the question. This is Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus had to become like us to show us that we could become like him. That's pretty cool. That's very cool. That's why Jesus had to go through those periods of temptation so that we could see that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can stop it too. We don't have to keep going. Now, along the lines of the good news of what we're learning in James chapter 1 is early on, he shows us a different pattern. This is found again in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, early in the week, I also wanted to share with you some things that come out of the original language so that we could put this in the right perspective. If you're in verse 2, you can go to that word trials. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You can highlight that, underline that, and then skip over to verse 12. You'll find the word again. Blesses the man who remains steadfast under trial. You can highlight that, underline it, make it stand out. Because in verse 13, you'll find this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Highlight and underline that word tempted. And in the original languages, you will discover 
that the word trial and the word tempted are the exact same words. They are the exact same words. All through Scripture, they are the exact same words used in different contexts. Now, when James says that when we are tempted, nobody can say that God is tempting me. But earlier, James is teaching us that God tests his children. We all go through trials, but it's the same word, trials and temptation. So what do I do with that? Well, understand the context. And I hope you know this because we've been talking about it for weeks. If you haven't been with us, you can listen at libbychristianchurch.com. God will always, God will always, God will listen, God will always test his children because he wants you to see what kind of faith you're standing on. God wants you to see what your strength is like. And he's also taking a look at it. So God will always test his children. But he will not lead you into sin. He will not tempt you to sin. He may take you through very difficult things, but he's not tempting you to sin because God hates evil. God hates sin. It is against his character and against his nature. That takes us into a deeper theological study where we have to look at the character and the nature and the supremacy of who God is. We have to look at his sovereignty. Within that, we will find things like the hypostatic union, but we will also find that God tests his children, but he doesn't tempt his children. Even though it's the exact same word, there's a line that divides them. And we have to understand where one comes from and where the other comes from. That's what James is teaching us. He's helping us understand that. And he does it by showing us that through trials, there is a path that leads us away from sin. Take a look at this. Again, this is John Piper's teaching. When we are tested, if we remain steadfast, it leads to completeness and ultimately to the crown of life. That's the way it works. When we are tested, if we remain steadfast, we will experience completeness that takes us to the crown of life. That's pretty cool. Put the two together and you see a path that leads to death, or you can put this one together and see one that leads to life. The choice is ours. The choice is ours. That's really what it boils down to. Do I want life or do I want death? I have to choose which path I will follow. But God gave us one. God gave us one that we should all long for. That's what James is wanting us to understand in the whole of this, and that's why it's so necessary to approach it like the double oatmeal cream pie, because otherwise if you approach it like an Oreo cookie, you're never going to see the whole of it. You're never going to get to experience everything that is in it, so you approach it like the oatmeal cream pie all together. So that's where I was headed with this early in the week. That's what I was wanting us to explore. And then Wednesday night in our SALT group, when I discovered this easy-to-read version of the Bible, I decided to completely switch gears, and I thought, well, I'm not going to go through any of this with the church on Sunday morning, because that's not easy to read. So, I started changing directions. You can just discount everything we talked about, because that was early in the week stuff. Let's move on to later in the week, easy-to-read stuff. And that's when I decided that I would actually go into that translation and see what James says in the easy-to-read version of the Bible for verses 12 through 15, and here it is. Great blessings belong to those who are tempted 
and remain faithful. After they have proved their faith, God will give them the reward of eternal life. God promised this to all people who love him. Whenever you feel tempted to do something bad, you should not say, God is tempting me. Evil cannot tempt God, and God himself does not tempt anyone. You are tempted by the evil things you want. Your own desire leads you away and traps you. Your desire grows inside you until it results in sin. Then the sin grows bigger and bigger and finally ends in death. Easy to read version. That's all it is. If I was going to paraphrase what that version captures in those verses, this would be it. Phil's paraphrase, stop blaming God. If you're on a path of sin that leads to death, stop blaming God. Blame is a default setting that exists in all of us. It really does. And it is very easy for us to turn that setting loose. Just think about it. You do something wrong, your first inclination is to try to blame somebody else. And if you're not blaming somebody else for what you did, you're denying that you ever did it in the first place. Those are the two default settings that we all have. We do it on a regular basis. But when it gets carried out to the furthest extreme, we can actually go to a place where we blame God for our sin. And in James's context, it may look like this. God has tested me and he has tried me and he's taken me through this very difficult situation and I just needed to find a way out. So I found something that made me feel better in the midst of these trials, but I'm not responsible for that. God did it to me in the first place. Therefore, what I choose to do is God's fault. That's the simple logic that takes us to a place where we blame God. The step before that is to blame the devil. We say, Satan made me do it. Devil made me do it. But really, at the end of the day, what we're saying is, I was in the midst of something difficult and I wanted an escape, and so I saw something that looked more appealing to me than what I was dealing with right now. I chose that way of escape so that it would make me feel better, which, by the way, it never does. Maybe for just a a moment or two, we feel good, but it all catches back up to us because we chose something different than God. But carried all the way out to the furthest extreme, we blame him. We blame him. We get mad at God, and we blame Him. That has been going on since the beginning of time. Literally, since the beginning of time. Join me in Genesis chapter 3, will you? Verse 8. Genesis 3, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. That was Adam's answer. God had Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and he said, everything that is here is yours. Just stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of that. That was the only rule. And then Satan came in and and said to Eve, did God really say that? Got her questioning it. And the next thing you know, not only had Eve enjoyed the apple, but now Adam had enjoyed the apple, and their eyes were open, and they knew that they were naked, but that knowledge led them to fear, and that in their fear they were hiding from God, and God finds them, and you heard what Adam did. It was Eve's fault. Now, you might hear that, and, and ladies, you would think very quickly, chicken, 
Just step up, Adam. What in the world are you doing? You're blaming me. And even guys, you might hear that and think, boy, he took the chicken way out. Listen to what happens next, verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. She did the same thing. She was blaming the devil. And as much as Adam was blaming Eve, Eve was blaming the devil, and neither one of them were taking responsibility. So James is teaching us that when we sin, when we are tempted and lured into it, when that desire grows within us, and we actually bring our desire and action together to the point of conception, and that produces acts of sin, own it. Just own it. Don't blame people. Certainly don't blame God, because this doesn't rest at His feet. Own it. You have to get past blame if you're going to get back on the right path. That is the only way to do it. You have to get past blame to get on the right path. It would be so hard for people to do. A 27-year-old lady named Joanne, single lady, gone through a lot of relationships in her life, longing to be married. It's what she wanted more than anything else. But each of the relationships that she had been in had gone south. <clears throat> All of them had turned sour. And here's what she would say. There was a pattern that was common. She would get together with these men, and as they got to know each other, the more she got to know them, the worse they treated her. And when they were confronted on their bad behavior, they would always blame someone else. But they would always do the same things. They would apologize for what they did, and then blame would follow the apology. There was always a but within their apology. And this 27-year-old lady became quite a theologian when she made this statement. When an excuse follows an apology for a particular offense, the excuse wipes out the apology. It's true. When we're trying to turn from a path of sin in our life, yet we blame, even if we're blaming God, the blame wipes out the apology. There's, there's nothing legitimate about it. It just wipes it out, makes it go away. So James is teaching us to quit the blame game. Just stop it. Own what's happened and get on the right path that leads to life. Because earlier he said there's blessings waiting for you. There are blessings waiting for you. And that's one of those things we learn as we go through this chapter when we approach it the right way. And it's one of the things that we have to learn. In the process of that, we will get to a place where we can avoid what I would refer to as the great deception. Join me in verse 16. James 1, verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. That's the great deception. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The great deception is also as old as time itself. The snake would try to convince Eve that God was holding something back, God was withholding a blessing. And he still does that. That's the lure of sin. If you'll do this, it will be greater than what God offers you. You will feel better by doing it your way than you will by God's way. God's holding something back. That's not true. That is not true. Certainly, we're going to go through periods of testing. The Bible is plain about that. 
But as we make our way through it, the blessings of God stack up in our lives in such a way that the, every good and perfect gift becomes evident to us. And if it isn't enough for you to experience it here, then think about what waits for you when the crown of life is put on your head and you're in heaven where you get to experience the best of creation forever. And you have forever to do that because it will take that long to experience it. Every good and perfect gift is coming down from the Father of lights poured out on His children. Certainly He may test your faith, but don't let anything take that from you. You hold on to it. But people will say, and I've heard it pretty regularly and I know others have as well, what do I do in those moments where I do not have enough left? Where I can't handle it? Where the trials and the tests that are leading me into temptation are just too much and I want nothing more than to surrender to the sin. Well, this is when we get to the how-to portion of this message. As we're going through this book, I've told you that I want to do that on a weekly basis where I show you a how-to portion. This is it. Beginning with this. There's only two things I'll share with you today. When you are at the end of your rope and you have nothing left and you know that you're right on the brink, right on the brink, then you start making a list of every good thing God has given you. It will change your perspective. I'll show you what I mean. I want to take you to the book of Genesis again. 39th chapter. Genesis chapter 39. This is Joseph's story. Joseph was, he was in the midst of a tough time, being tested. He was a young man. He'd been sold into slavery by his brothers. Can you imagine? By his brothers. If you have ever gone through a time of betrayal within your family, read Joseph's story. He was sold, literally sold into slavery by his brothers. Initially, they wanted to kill him, and then they decided to sell him. That's not a great story. After he had been sold into slavery, this is what happens, verse 39, chapter 39. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. 
And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So here he is now in Potiphar's house. Potiphar's like a governor watching over all of the the armies of Pharaoh and he's taking care of this and Joseph has risen to power in his home. He is a man of position and power and his wife, Potiphar's wife, wants him. She wants him. And did you see what happened in the face of the temptation? And I want you to remember where Joseph came from. He'd been thrown into a pit and sold into slavery by his brothers. But now here he is in Potiphar's house, a man of position and power and of wealth. And he says no. But before he says that, he started listing everything that God had done for him. And that's what got him through the temptation. That's what sustained him, remembering the goodness of God remembering what the Lord had done. That's what got him through to this point in Genesis chapter 41, verse 37. He is now in Pharaoh's home. Joseph spent two years in prison. And the Lord got him out. And he skipped right over Potiphar and he got him into Pharaoh's home. Verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. He became the number two man in all of Egypt because he remained faithful, steadfast, complete, leading towards the crown of life. And all he had to do was look back and see what God had done for him. That was enough. That was enough to avoid the temptation. You might say, sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it isn't. What do I do then? What is it, or what do I do when I can't remember that? Well, I saw that illustrated beautifully two weeks ago. Here's the story. Amy Dawn Seahorn, her married name is Bringhurst, Amy Dawn Bringhurst, at 44 years old, mother of five, who had an effective, beautiful, growing ministry to children, both in the United States and in Africa, died of a massive heart attack. Five children at home with her husband works nights. The five kids found her in the morning. Amy has been a special lady in Tina and I's life for a long time. She was part of the first youth group when I was an intern at at Rolling Hills Christian Church. Amy was a big part of that youth group. She was also the preacher's daughter. 
we stayed connected to Amy through the years. She came to Bible college when I was working there. She was actually the first intern I ever had when I worked in a church. I had the privilege of doing her and, and Greg's wedding. She's been very special to us. And we have followed her all these years. And then she died. We heard about it just hours after her children had found her. I was in contact with her dad right away and remained so over the coming days as it led up to the funeral. They wanted us to come and, and be a part of the funeral, but we just couldn't make all of that work. But we did get to watch the service as it was live streamed on Facebook, and I'm so glad we did. Amy's dad, Steve, the first preacher that I ever worked with, preached the best and most powerful sermon I have ever seen him or heard him preach. It came right out of James chapter 1, and he never opened his mouth. He never said a word. At the end of the service, after the other preachers had done their part, they had one song left. It was the song, 10,000 Reasons. I want you to see what happens. The sun comes up, it's a new day dawning. It's time to sing your song again. Whatever may pass and whatever lies before. worship because he had nothing left and I know he had nothing left because of the messages that we were sending back and forth in the days leading up to that I'd thought about sharing some of those with you but they're very personal and quite honestly none of your business so I decided not to do that he had nothing left and he chose to worship at his daughter's funeral boy he could have been tempted into sin even remembering all the things that God has done for him through 45 years of ministry. He just recently retired. His hope was to spend more time with his children. He had nothing left. He chose worship. Standing in front of all of those people, alone, he chose worship. And that's what sustained him. That video has gone viral longer than that. The entire service has gone viral. Thousands and thousands of people have watched it, and the message has been preached. It comes right from James chapter 1. When you have nothing left, you worship. You may be in that situation right now where you're facing some incredibly difficult situations and you have nothing left and sin sounds really good, really good. And you could go on that path at really the blink of an eye. I want to encourage you not to. You make a list of what God has done for you and if that isn't enough, then you worship. You worship, it will recalibrate your heart. You, re or you worship and let God do what only God can. You worship. We want to offer an invitation to you. If you need somebody to pray with you, respond to this invitation. 
If you need the Holy Spirit to blow through your life and bring power there, you respond to this invitation. If you need strength and encouragement, you respond to this invitation. If you need to know Jesus, you respond to this invitation. Whatever it is, you respond so that you stay on the right path, one that leads to the crown of life, not death.